please take your Bibles, and if you could, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. This morning we're looking at verses 11 to 22 of that chapter. Before we read, it's worth us orientating ourselves in the contexts that we find ourselves in. There are two. There is first the biblical context. So if you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've been working our way through this book of Ephesians. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the end of chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul prayed for this church in Ephesus. And uh, our pastor, Paul, asked us to get that we've got it. That is Paul's prayer, that they would understand the gospel more. They would know the hope to which he's called them and the God who has called them more. But then last week we saw, actually, Paul wasn't satisfied just praying that they would get the gospel, but he then actually tells them the gospel. And the pattern he used was this once now formula. So he said, once you were dead and enslaved and condemned, but now, now you are alive, saved, and in relationship with God. Do you remember that? Once, but now. But what we're going to see this week is Paul is not content just to tell them the gospel once. He is going to tell them the gospel a second time. Like Grover, he knows that the key to education is repetition. And so he is going to tell them the gospel, again, using the same pattern. Once you were like this, but now God has done this. And what we're going to see is that he takes just a few steps to the side and looks at the same gospel from a slightly different perspective. So last week we saw specifically that It was a gospel that reconciles us, that brings us back into relationship with God. So it was the vertical dimension. This week he keeps one eye on that vertical, but he also, if you can do this, takes another eye and looks at the horizontal consequences of the gospel. What does the gospel do for our interpersonal relationships? Now that brings us to the second context, which is our social context. A passage which throws up a spectrum of words like hostility, reconciliation, and peace stands out pretty loud and proud in a week where our Prime Minister uh, diagnosed pockets of our society in its criminality as sick. Now, if, if you're in the Ephesians mindset, you're already thinking, I hope, well, yes, Mr. Prime Minister, but... Not just pockets, all society. And not simply criminality, but actually sin. And not even just dead. It is far worse than that. Sorry, not even sick. It is dead in trespasses and sins, as we saw last week. It may be tempting, or maybe you found yourself this week, looking at the riots and the looting down south, almost with a kind of looking down your nose or keeping at arm's length saying oh that's not me Uh, there's the problem they have the issues they should be punished but what's interesting is you've seen the court cases over the last few days there's been a real spectrum of people who've stood before the court it's not just a particular generation not just a particular class or a certain race there have been social workers students teaching assistants, even the daughter of a millionaire, have stood in court for their involvement in the riots and the looting this week. 
That is a diverse enough spectrum to say it is not them and us, but actually they are us. Uh, It is not just when we look in the newspapers that we see this dead society. We see it as much when we look in the mirror. See, words like hostility, reconciliation, and peace don't just apply out there, actually in here. Is that not true? Um, Whether it's in our family relationships, in our marriages, whether it's disagreements over theological convictions, or whether it's struggles with holding grudges or giving death stares or employing the silent treatment, these are issues that go on in here. And so it's when Paul lays down this gospel into this social society, this community, well, he's going to show us that amid this deadness, the gospel shines in stunning brilliance. Let's go to Ephesians 2 and read from verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, and thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you, who are no, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Let's pray before we turn to think about these things. Our Father, we pray with Paul that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us and that we may know you through our Lord Jesus Christ by your spirit. Amen. Now think back with me to the Sesame Street clip. Okay, think back to Professor Grover. Grover's idea was that he wanted to show you what the difference was between being far away and being near. Now the Apostle Paul is going to employ that same tactic in this passage. In verses 11 and 12, in effect what the 
apostle is doing is running far away from the camera. He bolts into the far distance and shouts, this is what it was like that you were far away. It's kind of what he does in verse 11 and 12. Then from verse 13, he is going to sprint back up to the camera, nice up close and personal, and he is going to say, this is how you were brought near. And this is what it is like to be near. So the Apostle Paul, with the help of his glamorous assistant Grover this morning, is going to teach us that we were formerly far, but that you are now near. Okay, formerly far, but now near. Look with me at verse 11. Paul writes, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. Now, there is a lot in that verse 11. To help us understand this and later on, we need to get into the mindset of a Jew. Now, according to God's people, the Jews, there were only two categories of people in the world. There was either the Jews or there was the Gentiles. God's people or not God's people. And the sign that you were part of God's people was that you were circumcised. So there was Jews or Gentiles, circumcised or uncircumcised. So when the Jews here call themselves the circumcision, that is them telling you they are part of God's people. Now when they call the Gentiles the uncircumcision, that is a pretty derogatory nickname that they're using. If you want to know how derogatory it was, think back to the episode of David and Goliath. So there's a pretty hostile war zone situation. And when Goliath and David are exchanging verbal blows, eventually David brings out the bomb and lays down, you uncircumcised Philistine. Okay, that is a, it's a pretty derogatory cuss of an enemy. It might not work in your office, but back then it was, people would have understood it. So when the Jews here are calling the Gentiles the uncircumcised, It is this derogatory nickname that reminds them that they were not God's people. So in this verse 11, we're starting to see evidences of the social chaos of the first century that Paul writes into. You've got these Jews looking down their noses at the uncircumcised Gentiles. Now, there's application for us already in there. It reveals in some ways the natural tendency of the human heart to self-righteousness, to looking down your nose at someone else and feeling a superiority. Now, I have noticed this in myself this week as I've watched the news. It is very easy to say it is that group of people, it is them over there, it is not me. I am not like that. The Apostle Paul says in verse 11 almost, he says the danger of that self-righteousness is that it often comes with the externals only of religion. Do you see what he says about their circumcision? That done in the body by the hands of men. Now circumcision was only ever a sign that was to point to an inward reality. Not just a cutting off of the flesh, but the inward change of the heart, not done by the hands of men, but by the hands of God. If you're someone who finds yourself with a tendency to self-righteousness, it may need a spiritual checkup to ensure that you're not just happy with the externals of religion, 
church attendance, religious formalities. Because Paul says these two things actually often come together. Anyway, back to verse 12. Paul comes to these Christians who were once Gentiles. And in verse 12, and well, 11 and 12, do you see the double the emphatic remind, or exhortation? He says, verse 11, Therefore, remember. Then the start of verse 12, see? Remember. Paul wants them to remember that they were formerly far. He wants to take the Gentiles like Grover back into the distance and say, this is what you used to be like. And he lays on five pretty devastating descriptions of what it means to be separate from God and his people. He shows us that to be far is actually a really dreadful situation. I mean, let's look at the five. Here they are. Number one, separate from Christ. Do you see that in verse 12? Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. That is bad news in Ephesians. Everything we have seen in Ephesians so far that is good has come from when you are united to Jesus. Everything good. So you could run through a list which would include grace, peace, blessing, love, adoption, grace, redemption, forgiveness, wisdom, understanding, hope, truth, salvation, promise, inheritance, redemption, power, mercy, life, and kindness. All in Christ. Get the point? To be separate from Christ. To be far from Christ. It's dreadful. It is death. It is enslavement. It is condemnation. And he says to those Christians who were once Gentiles, he says, remember, that was you, separate from Christ. Secondly, he says, excluded from citizenship in Israel too, and three, foreigners from the covenants of promise. Now, so far in Ephesians, all these blessings have been tied to being united with Christ, but also have come from being part of God's chosen people, those who are adopted, predestined, chosen, uh, sealed, included. To be united to Christ is to be united to his people. And therefore, if you are separate from them, it is a dreadful state to be in. It is to have none of the promise. It is to have none of the benefits of being his chosen people. And again, he says to Gentiles, remember, that was you. With none of that. Fourth, he says, without hope. Fifth, he says, without God. Now that is not to say they had no hopes for the future, they had no comprehension of deity. But it is to say, separated from his people, they had none of the promise for eternity. And it's to say, separate from Christ, they had no true or saving knowledge of God. Remember that was you? Not yours by right, not yours by birth, not yours by merit. Separate from Christ, separate from his people, without hope and without God in the world. A life of vain hopes that disappointed and only idols that never satisfied. Now that fivefold description, it struck me this week, that is a pretty clear depiction of hell in terms of a biblical definition. Without Christ, separate from his people, 
no promise, no hope, no God. And Paul twice exhorts us as Christians to remember, remember that was you. You were formerly far. Now, for some of us, it will be a really painful thing to remember our pre-Christian past. There may be things in that past which we have buried and we don't want to go digging up again. Whether it was past sins or past relationships or just past memories, we want to leave them buried. Why would Paul be so mean as to tell you, remember your past? Actually, Paul says, there is great usefulness in remembering that you were formerly far. Great usefulness. Why? Because it rids you of any self-righteousness that your heart might be inclined to. It robs you of any pride. It steals away from you any grounds for boasting. And you know what it does on the positive side? It says, it shows you the riches of his grace. It shows you that you can say with Paul in chapter 3, to him be the glory. And it makes your constant repeated refrain, I must have been saved by grace and not by works. See, the day, the day that we fail to remember that we were formerly far will be the day that we forget grace. The day you forget that you were formerly far will be the day where you forget the serious predicament of those who are around you in need of grace. Let's do a, a brief mind exercise for a moment. Those of you who are Christians, think back to the pre-Christian you. Think back to you before you came to claim Christ as your life. Now, if you were to meet that pre-Christian you walking down the street, would you be able and willing to reach out to them with the grace of the gospel? Or would you consider yourself back then too lost to be found? Would you look at yourself with too much self-righteousness to extend the arm of grace? Maybe you're not even in the right places. Maybe you're not even prioritizing the right time that would ever meet the pre-Christian you. See, there is a great usefulness in remembering that you were formerly far. Because it reminds us of what we have been saved from and will keep us reminding us of the great need in this world for grace. And so Paul says twice, uh, those of you who are Christians, remember. Remember that you were formerly far. In verse 13, he kind of summarizes all those five dreadful disadvantages. And he says, you who were once far. Now, why is it that Paul, like Grover, runs to the back? Why does he run far away from the camera? Well, it is because he wants to take us to the deepest, darkest caveats of our past so that when we come into the light of the gospel, our eyes strain to readjust to the brilliance of its light. He takes you to the deepest depths of your past to show you that actually you should have a vertigo when he takes you to the heights of your salvation. He takes you miles from the camera to bring you up close to say, verse 13, you who were once far away, 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, there, there is a kind of geography, if you like. There's a transportational movement to the gospel. You who were once far have been brought near. And you know, to bring us near, God himself had to come near. He came near in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He came near enough to witness the separation, to sense the alienation, to experience the isolation, and even to be on the end of the hostility. In fact, more than that, God in Jesus Christ came so close that he himself suffered the separation that sin brings. On the one hand, isolated from the rest of humanity, but as he hung on the cross, isolated from his heavenly Father. And so as he screamed out in the darkness, what did he cry? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He suffered that hell on the cross. He was without God in the world as he hung on the cross so that he might bring us near. So, and so that the enmity that existed between me and God might be removed, he took the source of that enmity, our sin, and he took it far away so that we could be brought And how? By the blood of Jesus. Now look at verse 14. We are told, for he himself is our peace. It may be that part of the pain of remembering the pre-Christian you is that it brings up very vivid memories of past sins. And it may be that those things really assault your conscience. Maybe a real photographic memory of those times. Well, apply this beautiful title of Christ to those memories. He himself is your peace. If, if those sinful memories were Facebook photos, you could tag them. Remove the tag that was the pre-Christian you and place on it the tag that says, Jesus, my peace. That is the joy of the gospel that Jesus has removed the hostility that one exi once existed between you and the God of eternity. He is our peace. And it was by his blood. One commentator couldn't resist a cheesy line. The price that brought us near was dear. But it's true. It cost him his blood, his Life laid down in sacrifice so that he paid the price of the separation that my sin deserved that I might be formally far but not anymore now but now now near we mentioned at the start though that Paul has just got one eye on this vertical dimension Paul has his other eye on the horizontal impact of the gospel. He wants to say, how does the gospel apply to our interpersonal relationships, to the social chaos that we see and that was going on between Jews and Gentiles in the first century? And we're going to see we've got a little bit of work to do here. Uh, 
We need to get our heads in the text and try and work out what is Paul saying in this passage. It's hard work. But let's get our heads in the text and remember as we do that Jewish mindset. Two fundamental categories of humanity. Jews, Gentiles. God's people, not God's people. Circumcised, uncircumcised. Let's look at verse 14. As we see the the social consequences of the death of Christ. Verse 14. For he himself, that is Jesus is our peace, who made the two one. There's that mindset of the two. Do you see that? Who made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. So just taking the words that are there, we can see that between Jews and Gentiles, there was a division. There was a barrier, a wall between them And it was, the words used are, divisive and hostile. And how did Jesus remove this barrier? Well, it says, by abolishing the law. Now, what is going on there? I read about six commentators, and they said about seven different things. Okay, so we're going to have to pick our way through this carefully. But what is going on? that it means Jesus has abolished the law and removed the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Well, remember again, back to Grover. None of the commentators mentioned Sesame Street, but this will hopefully help us. Grover showed us that what it was to be far and what it was to be near. And so Paul has employed that tactic. And he has said, do you know what? To be far away does not just mean that you are separated from Christ. There's a twofold issue. You are separated from Christ as Gentiles and also separated from his people. Do you remember that? Separate from Christ, excluded from his people. Now to God's people who he had brought near in the Old Testament, he had given his law, as it says here, and its commandments and regulations. Now the purpose of that law was not to bring them near. The law could not bring them near. That was done by God in his gracious rescue. So the law was not how they were brought near, but it did teach them how to live now that they were near. Now the Gentiles did not have that law. And this law that God gave the Jews was actually to distinguish the Jewish people, God's people, from all the other nations. As it taught them how to live near to God, it, by implication, separated them from all the nations of the world, the Gentiles. And as well as separating them, it actually protected them from the sinful practices of those nations. So in a sense, it acted as a a wall between Jew and Gentiles. Now, if you work visually, if you're better with visual things than with words, think to the temple architecture. In the temple where God met with his people and where God dwelt, there were various partitions and walls and barriers. The one you'll be most familiar with, I guess, is the big thick curtain that protected God's holy of holies from his people. Yeah, you know that? So that told us that God must be separate even from his own people, the Jews. But right at the exterior edge of the temples was another barrier, which was a wall that kept the Gentiles further away. It's about a meter and a half high, and it kept the Gentiles further, far, if you like, from God than the Jews. So there is God's law, which in its proper function actually 
kept the Gentiles further away as a barrier between them and the Jewish people. Now look at what Jesus does in verse 14. He has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his death the law with its commandments and regulations. Here's what I think is going on. After the death of Christ, what determines or what determines uh, nearness to God is no longer citizenship in Israel or adherence to its laws, but being near to God is now dependent on your unity with Christ. See, following the death of Christ, those laws that separated Jew and Gentile were abolished because they were only for a specific place and a specific people for a specific period of time. They were a shadow which pointed to the greater reality of Christ that was to come. And so think to the physical nature of the temple again. When Jesus died, what happened to the curtain? It was torn in two to show that Jews could come near to God. But when Jesus died, what Paul is saying here is, it is as if that exterior wall of the Gentiles has been demolished as well. It is not just that Jews can now come nearer to God, it is that Jews or Gentiles, because what kept them apart, what divided them, has now been abolished by the work of Christ. His death has not only broken down the curtain which separated from God, but has also broken down the wall which separated and kept apart Jew and Gentile. So look in verse 15. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, and thus making peace. And in his one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. There's the transportation, the geography of the gospel again. He has not only brought people from far from Christ to be united with Christ, but he has brought people who were far from God's people and made them one new humanity. God's purpose for this world to create his church, not by, defined by nation or by their law, but defined by unity to Jesus Christ. The fundamental division after the cross of Jesus is not Jew or Gentile, but the question that lands on the table of every person in humanity is in Christ or not in Christ? To be part of his one new humanity or not? To be a Christian or to be a non-Christian? And God's purpose in doing this was not only to unite people to himself, but to create one new humanity. That is why he then says in verse 16 that he is to reconcile both to himself, both the Jew and the Gentile. That is why in verse 17, Jesus preaches peace to both those who were near and those who were far. And that is why in verse 18, he says they both have access to the one Father by the one Spirit. He is creating one new humanity, his church, defined now by their unity to Christ. So ask the question, how is it that a, a hostile Jew can be reconciled, have peace with a hostile Gentile? 
Well, it is as they realize that both of them were as dead as each other, as enslaved as each other, as condemned as each other, and both need united to Christ. See, the backbone of reconciliation with each other is reconciliation with God. That is the means of unity across the board. That is the means of peace in our interpersonal relationships. It is to be reconciled to God through the one cross, the same Savior, and united, therefore, to one another. One writer says this, which is helpful. Christians who maintain walls of hostility between themselves and others at the interpersonal level need to revisit the cross. I think I want to add to that. Christians who maintain walls of hostility between each other need to first remember their past, that they were both formerly far, and secondly, need to revisit the cross and see that they are both now near. See, if we come down to the Charlotte Chapel level, how do we go about restoring those broken relationships? How do you go about mending that marriage where trust has been broken? How do you go and reconcile with that person where there has been a long-term grudge? Well, first, you both need to revisit your past and acknowledge before God and yourself and each other that you were both as lost as each other. You were both formerly far. Neither of you had reason to boast. Neither of you had reason for self-righteousness. And then you need to revisit the cross and say, we were reconciled by the same Savior. We were united by the same Jesus. We were bought by the same blood. And he has brought us not only in unity and reconciliation and peace with God, but in doing so, he has created us as this one new humanity. Our unity as a church will be dependent on our proximity to the cross. We need to remember our past and revisit the cross. Now, this news of the gospel here means that the gospel is available to all without distinction, Jew or Gentile, whatever race, whatever age bracket, whatever class. I've been challenged by this this week. Here's a challenge for those of us who are members of Charlotte Chapel. Do we acknowledge that the gospel is for all? That in Christ's death, he has broken down the walls of hostility so that all without distinction can come to him? Or do we sometimes build little barriers on top of the gospel? Little barriers that exclude some people that keep some people distant. One thing that convicted me this week was it may be that we erect some barriers that protect us in our kind of middle-class comfort zone. There may be some people who we think, oh, we, we don't want them coming into Charlotte Chapel. We're quite comfortable. We don't want people who might dress in ways that are offensive or maybe use language that we might not like or we might not like sitting in the pew next to them because of the smell or we don't want people who will actually spill out into Rose Street afterwards and have a cigarette 
or people who will bring children into our Sunday school who will lead our children astray. No, we, we want to keep them. Let's send them to Nidri. Let Mez deal with them. It's challenging, isn't it? Do we see people's sanctification, they're becoming more like Jesus as actually becoming a little bit more like us? Becoming more middle class rather than more Christ-like? Charlotte Chapel, Jesus has broken down the walls of barriers across the board. We dare not start to rebuild them. This is a gospel for all without distinction. We need to remember our past and we need to revisit the cross if these are things which define us as a church. Well, let's close. As in verses 19 to 22, Paul kind of rounds off the section by giving three kind of pretty well-crafted poetic images almost that drive home this point that we are not only uh, given peace with God but also with one another. He, he does the Grover thing again in verse 19 where he runs away and says, you were formerly far, a little bit like foreigners and aliens. And then he comes right back up close and says, do you know what? You're not only restored so that you have a king to serve and a father to access and a God to worship. But look, he says, you became a fellow citizen, a member of the father's household, a brick in the temple of God. They're all corporate images, aren't they? They're all together built together, verses 21 and 22 says. I think often our individualistic culture has crept into the church, so we think that, well, remember the old song, it's Jesus and me, that's the best combination. Actually, Paul wants to reorientate us and say, no, we need to start thinking of ourselves in the corporate, in the collective. He's not only brought us from separation to Christ to unity with him, but he's brought us from separation from each other and gathered us back together. He has made us one new humanity. If you have a low view of Christ's church, if you have little time for Christian fellowship, if it's not a priority in your time and in your prayers and in your hospitality and in your private life, then actually these verses say you're out of line with God's purpose for humanity. You're building on another foundation than the apostles and prophets. And you're out of kilter with the cornerstone that is Christ. Charlotte Chapel, look around you. You're all still looking at me. Look around you. Have a look at the people around you. They are all as sinful as you are. They all have the same past that you have. But you know what? They're all saved by the same Savior at the same cross, by the same blood, united to Christ. We have far too much in common to be squabbling in disunity. And Charlotte Chapel, look at the world around us. It is in far too much of a mess. It is in far too much need for us to be squabbling in here. Our unity will be the product of our growth, Paul says. We need to remember our past and revisit the cross. Let's pray.